Welcome to the Alcorn Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 together, all right? Y'all with me? All right, fellas, 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 I need your help. Don't let the ladies outdo you, all right? Let's go. Ready? Read. Louder. Thus says the first and the last. There you go. The one who was Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you today for this glorious day that we can praise you, Lord, and uh, that we can honor your son, Jesus. Uh, My prayer today, God, is that we would grow in our faith exponentially, Lord. Uh, My prayer today, God, is that we would see the beauty of what you've called the church to be. Um, Lord, I pray today that we will be strengthened and encouraged in our faith to stand firm in the face of adversity and challenges and all that it means to be a Christian in a post-Christian society. Lord, I pray today that you would that you would help us to fall in love with the church again. I pray today, God, that, that we would boldly declare that, that we are members of the body of Christ. And so, Lord, I, I just pray today that your son Jesus would be made known. I pray that he would be lifted up. Your word says that if I be lifted up, I would draw all men. And so, Father, I pray that, that through the preaching of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that men would be drawn to you today. To those of us who are here today, we may not be Christians. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you for who you truly are. For those of us who are already in the faith today, God, I pray that you would give us supernatural strength to, to be bold, to, to, be, to have conviction about what it is that we believe and who we trust. So, Lord, we thank you today. We give you honor and praise for this opportunity to study your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. From the sermon series, Taking Back the Church... My sermon title this morning is, The Church is More Than a Building. The Church is More Than a Building. For, for a brief recap of, of last week, I think it's important for us to know this, that when Jesus wrote to John, he put in a letter to the church at Ephesus, he said something about himself. He said that he was the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the stars there uh, could mean the angels or, uh, or, or, or the pastors of the church. But he says he also walks among the seven lampstands. And so I want you to know this. So you may want to notate this in your Bible. When Jesus says the seven lampstands, he's actually talking about the church. It makes sense when we think about what the church is called to be. The church is called to be salt and light. So it would make sense for us to know that he's referencing the church when he talks about the seven Lampstands, And here's the beauty of what he said to the church at Ephesus. He says that I hold the, the star in my right hand and I walk among the seven lampstands. And what we learned last week was that 
Jesus is not detached from what the church is doing. Jesus is not aloof about the church. He's not a stranger to the church. Jesus is actually among his church when the church gathers. So so oftentimes in church, we wait for a feeling to tell us if the presence of God is in the room, right? But, But what Ephesus taught us was that is that Jesus is here whether you feel him or not. As long as we are gathered together, lifting up the name of Jesus, he is with us in the room. That is, that is good, good news for us also because that means that he is always in control. It may look like people are leaving the church. It may look like people are attending church less. It may look like people are lacking confidence in the institution of the church. But the truth of the matter is nothing that is happening in the world today regarding the church is a surprise to Jesus. He as is as close to us now as he ever was. And so for us as Christians, we need to have confidence in this knowing that even though the picture may look bleak, it may look dark at times for the church, there may be scandal, there may be loss, there may be all kinds of things happening. Do not fret if you are a member of the Lord's church because Jesus says that he is walking among us whether we see it or not, his presence is here. That's good news for us who are, who are Christians. And, and so with, with that being said, he, he's with us. He, he's with us. Everything about the church begins and ends with Jesus. I, I think a lot of the things that happens in the church today or happens within the church is because we occasionally forget why we're here. We, we, we occasionally forget that, that we're only here for one reason. We're only here for one reason, and that is to worship and pursue Jesus with our own hearts. But because we are fallen, because we are sinful beings, oftentimes we take our eye off the ball, and the main thing no longer is the main thing. And then you see church drama, there's gossip, there's divisiveness, there's all kinds of things that is happening in the Lord's church because we forget that the main reason that we are here is because of Jesus. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says this, the perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of, our attention would have been completely on God. Well, we're not looking at each other. We're not worshiping each other. We're not wondering what each other is doing, but we're all here together worshiping God with our whole hearts. But what ends up happening is that at times we all get self-centered and we forget while we, why we are here, and guess what happens? We get this consumerist mindset when it comes to a church. And so we judge churches by what they can offer me for my own personal benefit. And the truth of the matter is God has called us, redeemed us, made us a part of a church so that we can give our lives to the same thing that he died for. And so what we need to remember is this, is that we're here for Jesus. And here's why. Verse 8 tells us, it says this, Jesus calls himself this, thus says the first and the last, the first and the last. This is one of his titles that he will give himself when he's writing to the churches, first and the last, meaning this, that, that he is first because he was before anything else. He is the first. He is before everything, and he will be after everything. This simply just means that Jesus is eternal. Oftentimes, we just 
put Jesus in the context of the New Testament, not knowing or not realizing that he is co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so people say, well, I like Jesus because he's in the New Testament. No, 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 no. Jesus was also there in the Old Testament. So whatever God did in the Old Testament, oh, he was mean. He didn't do, he did this and he did this. Jesus was right there in agreement with him. Jesus is not just the God of the New Testament. He's the God of the, all the Bible. He's the God of the universe. He is the beginning and the end, meaning he is sovereign over everything. Here's what Colossians says about Jesus. He is before all things, and by him he holds all things together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. He is not just the author of creation. He's also the goal of creation. Everything leads to Jesus. He has everything in control. The Bible says that he holds all things together. Without Christ, there will be chaos in the cosmos. Meaning that if Jesus is not holding everything together by the power of his word, everything in the universe would fall apart. People kill me when they talk about whatever the universe gives me. Do you know that the universe is not a control? Do you know that the universe is a created thing? That, that, that Jesus holds everything in the power of his hand, by the power of his word? It, it's amazing to me that, that unbelievers who would not acknowledge Jesus, who would not, would not acknowledge God, God is holding their world together and not letting them fall apart. How gracious is God that people who don't believe him live in his world and are being held together by the power of his word. That's not just good news for the world. That's good news for the church. It says that he is the head of the body, the church. And because Christ is the head of the church, he not only has final authority over the church, but he gives life to the church. He gives life to the church. When we as Christians come face to face with persecution and suffering, brought about our choice to follow Jesus, uh, uh, we have even greater reason to stand firm and not fear because of the second part of what he says. He says, I'm the first and the last, the one who was dead, but has come to life. That, that, that means that he is the God that, that, that has been resurrected. That, that means that death has no power over him. But because of his own suffering and resurrection, he can encourage Christians like you and I to be faithful even unto death. Christ's death and resurrection serves as a backdrop that is needed to hold the church at Smyrna together. The reason why they can deal with their persecution and be faithful unto death is because they serve a God who defeated death. That's good. Romans 6 and 5 tells us, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is a truth that we have to grasp that since Christ died and was raised, we can be sure that even if we stand for Jesus and we die, we will one day be raised with him. That that's good news for us. That, that means that nothing that happens to us should really faze us. If death could not hold Jesus, then it can't hold his people either. That means no matter what, what you may face for being a Christian, that, that you don't have to fret or fear because Jesus overcame our greatest enemy, which is death. 
And so this was crucial to understand for the church that gathered in Smyrna. So let me tell you something about Smyrna. We, we saw the, the map. It's roughly 40-some-odd miles north of Ephesus. And it's, it, it was a major, a major port city. Great business was done there because it was right, right there on a port. And so all kind of commercial business was happening. They also had this Olympic-sized stadium in Smyrna where events and games sort of like the Olympics took place. It's important to remember that they had an Olympic-style stadium there. The population, there's several estimates of the population of Smyrna, but there's roughly 75,000 to 100,000 people who live in Smyrna at this time. Today, Smyrna would be the city of Izmir, Izmir which is located in modern-day Turkey. But in the first century, this was a thriving city that had a commercial center. It was regarded as a chief city, and it was second to, to Ephesus, only second to Ephesus in terms of its wealth. And so in, in Smyrna, there was also a strong Jewish population in Smyrna, but, but this population had a long-standing loyalty to the Roman Empire. They were under Roman control at this time in Asia Minor. But this Jewish population was, was, was somewhat loyal to Rome. But like Ephesus we talked about last week, they worshiped pagan idols. And so even in the city of Smyrna, they had shrines and temples dedicated to pagan gods like Aphrodite and Zeus and, and Apollos. And so people worshiped pagan idols. It was uncommon for a person to worship only one God. That was strange. People worshiped many gods at this time. So Smyrna was a very important place for what's called the imperial, imperial cult, which meant, meant this, that even the Roman emperor deserved worship. So not only did people worship the sun goddess and the goddess of fertility and the sex goddess and all of these goddess and gods and goddesses, they also worshiped the Roman emperor. People were encouraged to, to, to worship the emperor. They, they needed to worship the, the guy who was actually in charge. And, and so when we understand that, it helps us to have a proper context to the plight of the people in the church at Smyrna. Well, the problem is if you are expected to worship multiple gods but really expected to worship the emperor, what, what does that mean to, to, to a people whose faith that say, says that, that they're committed to Christ and Christ alone? We, we know that as Christians, we are not polytheistic. That, that means that we don't worship multiple gods. We are monotheistic, which means what? That we worship only one God, right? And, and, and so this is a problem. If the government expects you to worship their God, but you refuse to and you only worship the one God, and so this is, this is what they are living under in Smyrna at the time, that they cannot worship other pagan gods, and they don't want to. They understood Jesus' most important command. They understood this, that love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This means that I can't give my allegiance to anybody else but Jesus. But there are implications for this. There are consequences. To only worship the one living true God left them vulnerable to persecution. But remember this as Christians. You, you may not hear this in church often. 2 Timothy 3 and 12, remember this. Never forget this. In fact, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. 
That flies directly against and flies in the face of every teaching that tells us that when you become a Christian, all you're called to do is prosper and be blessed. When the Bible tells us right here clearly that, that if you want to live a godly life, meaning if you want to live for God, you will be persecuted at some point. I would venture to say that if you've never had to make a decision based on your faith and whether you were going to compromise your faith, you are not following Jesus. At some point, if you live long enough, if you've been a Christian long enough, at some point, you will have to turn away from what the world is offering you and trust what God has for you. At some point, somebody will not like you because you are a Christian. At some point, you will lose a job, lose friends or family members because you decided to follow Jesus. It is inevitable if you are following him the way that he calls us to follow him. But if you say he's never called me to give up anything, then you are not following him because he gave up everything. You cannot be a Christian and just live a flawless, happy life, sipping on a Kool-Aid and eating ice cream and dandelions, and you're always blessed, and life is always easy. Well, if you just sow $1,000, you'll be rich. No, if you sow $1,000, you may still be struggling. If I just save myself for marriage, God is going to send me the ideal spouse. You might be single for a long time. There are no guarantees. The only guarantee is your salvation. So, 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 so when you say, I want to be a Christian, know what that entails. The, the road to following Jesus is a narrow road. It's not wide. But the good news is this, that even if you do suffer, verse 9, here's what Jesus says. It's so beautiful. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. I know it. I know you're struggling. I know it's hard sometimes to make ends meet. I know what you're going through. The, no doesn't mean I'm, I'm aware. No means I feel you. I know what it means. But here's what he says. But you are rich. Now, if you're doing math, you're scratching your head. It's like, yeah, um, I'm struggling. There is no way that that can actually be true at the same time. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Meaning, I know those who are, who, are, who are lying on you and accusing you of things that are not true. But don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison to test you. Well, why would God let him do that? The charismatic prosperity gospel preacher told me that the devil can't touch me. Let's deal with this. First thing I want to say is what could be more comforting to know than, to, than to know that Jesus is understandable to your suffering, that he has an intimate knowledge of it, that you're not by yourself. And here's what he means when he talks about affliction and poverty. I told you that people were expected to worship the emperor, the, the imperial cult. Well, if you didn't do that, here's what happened. You lost financial opportunities. You lost financial opportunities to, to, to come up in life. If you had aspired 
to be somebody, you put that at risk for following Jesus and not worshiping the emperor. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty. These, these people were, were struggling. They, they, they had their property seized because they were following Jesus. Can, can you imagine can you imagine if, if our, our government decided that we had to worship the president of the United States of America? Can you imagine if that happened? If you didn't, they would come and repossess your car? Can, can you imagine that, that, that if soldiers marched through the streets and, and they asked you who you worship or if you had an allegiance to the emperor and, and you didn't say no, you had to move out of your apartment or move out of your house today because you didn't capitulate? How many of us would stand under that pressure not knowing where we would stay or how we would get to where we need to get to or if we would lose our jobs, how many of us would still choose Jesus? Well, this is what they're living under, people. This is what they are experiencing. They are losing jobs and opportunities to make a living. Their property is being seized. They cannot even meet their basic needs because of their commitment to Jesus. I want to say this. There may be times when we are presented with opportunities to make more money or get ourselves out of a financial situation. But to do so, we may have to compromise. So what do you do when that becomes your plight? That it's possible for you to get a promotion, but in order to do that, you got to do the wrong thing to the right person. What, 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 what do you do? What do you do? And just for a little bit more money, I just take this little side opportunity that I know is illegal, it'll, but it'll get me out of my situation. And God, I promise I'll tithe off of it. What do you do when if you flirt with the right person, you might get a raise or promotion? What happens if you, if you know you go and network and you, you get drunk with the right group of people? That your name comes to the top of the list when it's promotion time. What do you do? This is, this is what, this is what I'm, I'm presenting to you, that, that there will be times when we will have to make decisions like this. What, what happens, and I'm not being funny, I'm, I'm serious. What happens when, when you've been by yourself for a long time and, and the right person comes along, they look right, they talk nice, they have all of the credentials that you want, they just are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you got to make a decision, will I trust Jesus or will I compromise my faith because I love him so much? These are real options that are presented to us. And we have to be so sure in our faith and we have to trust Jesus so much that we're not willing to compromise, that we, even though we can't see it, we believe that he has our best interest at heart. He says, I know you're struggling. I know you're in poverty, but you are rich. What he means by that is they are spiritually rich. As Paul said, it, you, you have nothing, yet you possess everything. Meaning that the most important thing that you have is something that money couldn't buy you anyway. Your salvation, it was a gift given to you by God. Here's what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says. I love this. This is what Paul says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Meaning that he left the riches of heaven. He left the wealth of heaven. He left the beauty and the splendor of heaven to come down and live in our poverty so that we can have his spiritual riches. So even if you're broke, 
by material standards, you're rich in the spirit. And I know that doesn't sound nice, warm, and fuzzy to you, but trust me, you rather have spiritual riches than material riches because you can't take them with you and they can't purchase where you need to go. The only thing that we possess that will survive eternity is the gospel that has been entrusted to us. He also says this, I know your affliction, your poverty. I know, I know the slander. There are those who call themselves Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Remember at the outset when I was talking about Smyrna and I told you that they had a strong Jewish population? I didn't tell you that for no reason. I told you that for a reason because this strong Jewish population in Smyrna had, had this special permission not to have to worship the emperor. The, the Jews were exempt. They didn't have to actually take part in the idolatry. And, and, and so everybody else in the empire, everybody else in Asia Minor had to worship the emperor. But the Jews had a special status that, that they did not have to worship the emperor. If you worship the God of the Old Testament, you didn't have to worship the emperor. Well, the Jews there did not like the Christian converts. And so they told the Roman government and said, hey, these people are not like us. They may be Jewish ethnically, but they're not the same with us spiritually. So they are being disloyal to the emperor and, and so the Jews told and snitched on the Christians and was like you know what we know how we're going to get y'all for trusting in that maniac Jesus here's what we're going to do we're actually going to tell the Roman government that you are disloyal and what happens then is that there will be retribution for you can you imagine if somebody told was this rumor going around that that Christians here's one of the rumors that were happening the Christians are cannibalists they 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 they, they eat their own they eat their own. They, they eat their own flesh. What they were really doing was misinterpreting the Lord's Supper. They said, when you drink, eat the body and drink the blood, they said that they were cannibalists. So they told the Roman gover- government this. And so the government was like, we got to get these Christians. And this is the persecution. These accusations that these Christians were politically disloyal to Rome. But you know what Jesus said about them? He says, yeah, yeah they, they may be Jews, but, but they're not really. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. It's no different than what Jesus says to the Pharisees when he says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. I want to say this. Anytime somebody is pushing against Christianity or pushing against Christians, Satan is always behind that rejection. Don't be fooled. It is spiritual warfare going on around us. You think some of the stuff that's happening to you is just happenstance. But if, you can't, if it doesn't add up and the math is not mathing, and you're like, I'm, I'm living right, I'm, I'm, I'm repenting, I'm, I'm, I'm living and walking in the grace of God, I'm, I'm serving faithfully in my church, I'm being a good steward of my resources, I'm loving the Lord with my whole heart, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to follow Jesus, not to earn something, but because of the gift of salvation that I've been given. If you're doing that and life just seems to keep knocking you down, don't underestimate that there's a spiritual nemesis that wants to destroy you. And here's what he says. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. And you'll experience affliction for 10 days. 
And I know you're wondering, man, what in the world is going on? Why would God, what kind of God who says he loves me and knows that I love him would allow Satan to throw me into prison? What part of Christianity is that? That, that, that he, The devil, what, what's my, why would I get saved if you're going to let the enemy get to me? I can fight him by myself. Here's why we're writing the book of Revelation. It's not for us to determine the time when he's returning, but it's to help us to live faithfully while we wait for his return. Also, remember, Revelation is where we get the word apocalypse from, which means an unveiling, meaning that we can actually now see things for what they actually are. And part of the thing I want to bring your, your attention is this is not what it seems. The devil throwing Christians in jail is not what it seems. It, does, it, he, it seems like he has an upper hand, but it's not what it seems. There's more to this than meets the eye. Don't think that God has abandoned or forgotten about his people. If you don't have the right perspective about your suffering, you'll be tempted to walk away from the faith, and I'm trying to help you here. So the next time you're going through something and life is coming at you fast and it's one bad thing after another and they keep happening in succession, I want to let you know it's not what it seems, but you need to have the right perspective. You need to adopt a worldview, a Christian worldview, that says that I know that God is not absent in my trial. Here's what's happening. God is saying, I'm not actually leaving you. I'm using you to prove to him that you belong to me, and in the process, I'll get glory out of your suffering. This is what's happening here. And so they think, oh my goodness, Satan is winning. God is like, no, 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 no. He's not winning. I'm using you to prove to him that you belong to me. And while you endure this, I'm going to get the glory out of your suffering. You think I'm crazy? Remember Job? If you've never heard the story of Job, here's what happens. Job is minding his business. So is God. Satan comes, and he says, what are you doing? Going to and fro, just tearing people's lives apart. And what does God say? Have you considered my servant Job? And God says, have at him. You just can't kill him. Because God knows Job is more faithful to him than anything. And he's going to use Satan and Job to prove a point that there is a remnant of people that no matter how hard it gets, they will not turn their back on God. Oh, you need more scripture. I love that you need more scripture. Remember after Jesus' baptism, the Bible tells us Not that Jesus walked into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It tells us that Jesus was led there by the Spirit to be tempted. Once again, we see God leading his people into a place that's going to be uncomfortable for a season. But God is doing this to not only disprove and make the devil out to be a liar, but he's testing the metal, the M-E-T-T-L-E of his people. He is making sure that our faith is what it is supposed to be. He is testing and proving the faith of his people all while showing off the glory of God. And so here are two things that we need to know practically. Number one, we have an enemy that will always try to destroy our faith. 
We have an enemy that will always try to destroy our faith. Number two, this is good news here. He can do nothing except he's given the Lord's permission. And so here's what I love. He says he's going to throw some of you into prison. And you will experience affliction for 10 days. If you read that, you think nothing of it, right? He's going to put him in prison. Why would he put him in prison? Number one, to force compliance. If I put him in jail, nobody wants to sit in the county. No, nobody wants to go to 33rd. Nobody just wants to go there for giggles. No, nobody just wants to go and just test out what it means, what it looks like to live in a prison. No, nobody wants to do that, right? But if they put you in that kind of environment with those savages in there, you're going to think twice. You know what? I might need to cop to some stuff. All I got to do is admit this. To get out, I'll do it. And so he said, I'm gonna, he's going to throw some of y'all in prison. The affliction will only last for 10 days. That means so much. Because Jesus is telling them that there's a limited time that this is going to last. That this struggle is not going to last forever. That there is an expiration date on your affliction. So when he says 10, he's not talking about a literal 10. 10 is symbolic, indicating a limited time period, letting you know that eventually the hardship is going to come to an end. The fact that Jesus can tell in advance how long the trial is going to last is an indication that he is in control and he is going to determine the intensity of the trial that you have to go through. This is good for us. You, you might not know how long this season is going to last you, but God does. That, that God knows your expiration day, and, and he is in there with you. But if he knows, we can take confidence knowing that God is with me. I don't know when this is going to end, but he, he knows when this is going to end. I'll, I'll introduce you to another story. There's a young man in the Old Testament who has a, is, a, is a major prophet. His name is Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 1, he is tempted to eat the king's food, the pagan king's food, but he refuses to. And for how many days? Ten days. He does what we call a Daniel fast. And for ten days, he refuses to eat the king's food. And you know what happens at the end of ten days? He comes out stronger and better than he was when he went in there. Because sometimes our trials Make us look more like Jesus. God is not wasting your trials, and you shouldn't either. Whatever you're going through right now, God is using it to build your faith and make you stronger. The longer it lasts, the stronger you ought to be. This is not the time to detach yourself from the faith. This is not the time because you're struggling to, to deconstruct your faith. No, this means that this is the time to draw closer to God than you ever have in your life. When life turns up the heat, get closer to Jesus. Here's what, here's what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7. He says this, you rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary... You suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he means. 
your trial is building your faith and making you stronger. Whether that trial is relational, financial, spiritual, emotional, God is not punishing you. God is building your faith. But here's what he says, and this is the crux of the message. Here's what he says, verse 10. Be faithful. How faithful? To the point of death. To the point of death. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Faithful. Be found, be found faithful. Be found trustworthy. That regardless of what happens as a result of your faith, you hang in there. That you're not willing to compromise your faith even at the risk of losing money, relationships, or notoriety. Or in some cases, life itself. You know, oftentimes we, we disregard these texts about suffering and persecution because we live in America. And thank God that we live in America. The Bible is not telling us to be a glutton for punishment. He's not saying if you're, if you're not suffering, then go to a place where there is some suffering. No, that's not what he's saying. And I'm not saying that to you either. But because we live in this country where there is no persecution to the Christian yet, Yet, it always comes. It may not be life or death, but there's persecution. I've been a pastor for this church for eight years. It's going to get really quiet here. I'm going to step in it and I'm going to step out of it. It's going to get really quiet here, but this is my experience. We don't typically, no, no one's putting a gun to our head and telling us to worship the emperor here. Right? But man, they're, they're more subtle decisions that people have to make about their faith. The two always get one regarding relationships. Should I join to an unbeliever? That happens. The other one that happens is a matter of Greek life. I can't tell you if I had a dollar for every time a young man or woman came to me in consternation on whether they should pledge a sorority or fraternity or not. I get this all the time. It is, I wait on it. More ladies than guys be like, I'm doing it. I ain't even ask you because I already know the answer. I'm getting how I live, Jack. But young ladies, all the time. And I never give anybody an answer, tell them what to do. But if it causes you consternation on whether you have to do this and you think it will hurt your faith, that's the answer to the question itself. Anytime you have to question whether this is going to pull me away from the Lord, that is the answer. If you have to ask, is this, re- if, is this relationship going to serve and aid in my growth in Christ? If you have to answer that question, ask that question, then the answer is you probably shouldn't do it. And so we make things hard. Oh, should, should I do this or, or should I not do it? If you have to ask the question, is this going to drive me away from Jesus? That is the answer to the question. 
So I want to encourage you today. Whatever you think you're walking away from pales into comparison the life that God has for you. This is not a condemnation for y'all who agree because I can feel it in I can feel it in your spirit. It's emanating off your body. I'm not condemning you, but I am to say if you're trying to make that decision and, and the Holy Spirit is, is, is tugging and pulling at your heart, that is your answer. And that's not just for Greek life. That's for all of life. If there's a job that will cause you to compromise your faith just for a little bit more money, I think you'll be better suited than to not have the money. If there's a relationship where I'm going to pray that God will do a miracle on their behalf. Old preacher once said, if you got to date and do the evangelism at the same time, you don't need to be dating them. I think I will. If you, have, if you have to date and evangelize, you probably don't need to date. Jesus says you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. So, I want to tell you the last story that I'm doing. There's a gentleman. I have a picture of him. His name is Polycarp, real person in real history. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. The bishop of Smyrna, he's lived in the first century. Historians believe that he was an actual disciple of John, the beloved. He was a disciple of the man who wrote this book. He was the bishop of the church in Smyrna. And so when he was an old man in old age, um, it came to the point where persecution came to his doorstep. Now, around the age of 80-something or 90-something, they came to him and said, hey, we, we know that you are overseer of all the churches in, in, in uh, the churches in Smyrna, the house churches in Smyrna, but uh, you, you got to make a decision, and you got to worship Caesar too. You, you have to worship the, the emperor. And so they sat him down and tried to persuade him and, 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 and said, what, what's the matter? What, what, what's, what, what harm is there in saying Caesar is Lord as you make a little sacrifice and do what's required? It, it's the only way to save your life. You're an old man. We don't want to kill you, but you can't just be worshiping this one God. You got to worship the emperor. And here's what Polycarp said in his old age. Remember I told you that they had a stadium in Smyrna? Well, that stadium was not just used for athletics. That stadium was also used to bring people out into the stadium, and they would be mauled by savage beasts if they did not worship. They would literally have thousands of people in the stadium watching people as they were torn from limb to limb by wild beasts. And this is what is presented before this old 80-something, almost 90-something-year-old man. And here's what he says when they presented it to him. Just say Caesar is Lord. And here's what Polycarp says. I have no intention on doing what you are advising. He says, for 86 years, I've been his servant, and he has done me wrong not one time. How could I now blaspheme my king who saved me? If God has been with me then, God will be with me now. And his last words was this, bring it on. When you're faced with the choice to choose Jesus or the world, will your words be, bring it on. If I got to lose my job, bring it on. If you're going to break up with me, bring it on. If I lose money, 
bring it on. If you're going to stop being my friend because I'm following Jesus, bring it on. If a 90-something-year-old man can hold on to his faith, so can you. I want to read this insert, and then I'm done. Here's what it says about Polycarp and and the martyrs of this day. He says, Who could fail to marvel at the martyr's nobility and steadfast endurance and total devotion to the Lord? Even when their flesh was so shredded by whips that they could see their veins and arteries and internal organs, they endured the agony with courage while all the bystanders felt pity for them and burst into tears. Yet the martyrs themselves displayed such bravery that not one of them let out a murmur or a sigh. In this, they demonstrated to everyone that at the moment they were being tortured, These most noble martyrs of Christ were already away from their bodies, or rather, the Lord was right there beside them, communing with them, focusing their thoughts on the beauty of Christ. They despised their earthly torments and freed themselves from eternal punishment through one mere hour of suffering. Here's what it goes on to say. The fires of the inhumane torturers felt cool to them because they set their eyes instead on their salvation. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. Revelation 12 and 11 says they conquered him, him being Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. But they did not love their lives to the point of death. So what happens if I stand for Jesus? He says that there's a reward for you, that there's a crown. Typically, when athletes went into that that stadium in Smyrna, the winners, they received a crown, a wreath to go on their head, showing that they were the victors. Well, Jesus is using that and using a play on what they understood. He says that those who endure in their faith and that are faithful unto death and never turn their back on me, they too will receive a crown. But this is a crown that will never perish. This is a crown that will last for eternity. Some of us don't realize this, but there is a reward that is waiting for those of us who are faithful to the end. Jesus is not going to sit back, see us suffer through life for his sake and not reward us in a way that we cannot imagine when we get to heaven. There is a a reward, an eternal reward that no one will ever be able to take away from us when we get there. He says this at the end. He says the one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. And the second death is a death for unbelievers. We who are in Christ will never face a second death because we'll be raised with him. But here's what happens for those who don't trust in Jesus. Last scripture, and I'm done for real. Revelation 21 and 8 says this. I want you to let this sit in your heart. But the cowards, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, And all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. No matter how much 
cultural Christianity tries to take away the idea of, de- uh, of, of, of hell, it is a real place. And here's the thing. God does not send people to hell. People make choices. The only way to avoid this is by trusting the one who came, suffered, and died for your sake. The one who says at the beginning of this letter to Smyrna, to the one who was dead, but came to life. It's by trusting in him. If you want to avoid that reality of Revelation 21 and 8, there's only one way to do so. It is through Christ. Well, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't believe in a God who would, who would send people to hell. I, I can't get with the idea of hell. I believe that God is a God of love. It's amazing how many people think that a righteous and holy God who cannot stand sin would allow people to choose to be separated from him eternally. If somebody steals your car, if somebody hurts one of your family members, you think it is reasonable for them to go to prison for their crimes because they violated you or someone you love. But if someone who violates, dishonors, and disobeys God chooses to go to a place where they're separated from him, you can't grapple with that. Makes no sense. So if you're here today, and maybe you, two things, maybe you struggle with the idea of church, and maybe you like, I'm good on church. I don't, I don't really know how I feel about the church. I've seen a lot of stuff happen in church. I've seen scandals in church. I've seen division in church. I've seen church splits. I've seen people break apart relationships. I've seen people tear things down. I've seen leaders fail. I've seen all kinds of things, so I'm kind of cool on the church. I'll go, kind of check it out, listen to some sermons, hear some music, but then I'm done. I'm going to tell you something. We can see by reading these seven letters that there is no perfect church. But Jesus remains faithful to the church. And so we as believers have to recover the beauty of what it means to be followers of Jesus. That he calls us into a family of God called the church. And he is not separated from us. He is the head of the body, which is the church. And the church is who he died for. It's who he died for. And so today, if if you're here, and I'm done. Today, if you're here. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.